everyone welcome back to silicon street academy a podcast on venture capital technology and entrepreneurship geared towards college students and young professionals if you're new to the podcast go ahead and follow us on spotify and linkedin and definitely check out our existing episodes this time we have doug brody a capital markets managing director for kkr one of the largest private equity firms in the world Doug heads the co-investments and partnerships team globally and is responsible for maintaining direct investment relationships with some of the leading global LPs, including pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and asset managers. Prior to joining KKR in 2008, Doug worked for City and Capital Markets and Global Tech IB. Uh, with that, we'd like to welcome Doug to the show. How have you been? All good. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I kind of just summarized your role and career a little bit, but could you kind of just, you know, provide some more background on that and kind of explain what it means to work in capital markets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can try to unpack that a little bit. Um, so capital markets, just as a start, and then we'll jump into how capital markets fits up uh, well within the private equity industry. Um, but, but I think your uh, listeners are probably broadly familiar with, uh, obviously, investment banking on the one side and sales and trading, for example, on the other. Um, and, um, you know, and, and obviously, if you think about investment banking, uh, servicing the issuer clients, the, the companies and sponsors that do these transactions, and sales and trading, servicing the buy side clients like hedge funds and mutual funds, um, capital markets kind of sits in the middle. And uh, they are uh, part of the investment bank, but they spend all of their time as a product strategy um, executing capital markets transactions that could be initial public offerings. It could be follow-on offerings of stock, convertible bonds, uh, high-yield bonds, loans, uh, investment grade, et cetera. Um, and, and they're the product specialists that, that do that work for the bank, just like the M&A bankers do that work on an M&A transaction. Um, in, in the capital markets team, uh, it, it, it typically is going to interact really, really closely both with the investment bankers and with the sales and trading teams and with the buy side accounts like the you know, hedge funds and, 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 uh, and uh, long onlys. Um, now, capital markets uh, is a very important function to private equity firms. Uh, private equity firms, uh, uh, you know, do what you call leverage buyouts frequently. There's a lot of financing needs that go along with that. Um, it substantially uh, arranging debt capital structures at the time of the acquisitions um, and, and then finding partners to invest alongside the buyout fund um, uh, in, in the transactions. And then down the road, refinancing those capital structures um, uh, and then exiting the businesses. And so capital markets uh, or private equity firms are big users of capital markets products. Um, what's a little bit uh, different about uh, what we're doing at KKR is that we actually brought that whole capital markets function in-house. So we have a team of 60 people that executes capital markets, financings, underwritings, uh, and, and advice. Uh, in-house uh, at KKR. And that's the team that I sit in. Yeah, Doug, that's great. I think that's a very nice overview of kind of what, what the capital markets looks like. Yeah, excuse my voice, woke up a little congested this morning. Okay. Um, but, you know, next next kind of thing we wanted to, to get a little more um, 
insight into is, you know, we've we've interviewed partners and co-founders of various VC firms and growth equity firms. Um, can you just explain to our listeners kind of what role you think private equity has in the buy side industry, and, and could you explain to everyone kind of how it differs um, in both its strategy and uh, and you know its stage when compared to those earlier stage investors? Sure. Yeah. I, you know, one thing I'd start with with maybe your listeners is um, a lot of them, especially those studying corporate finance. Um, will be familiar with the difference between primary and secondary capital. Um, you know, primary capital is obviously new capital being contributed uh, to a business. Uh, secondary transactions are one, one owner is purchasing ownership interests from another owner. And what you tend to see on the spectrum, and this is one of the differences between kind of VC growth, late stage, and then private equity is that um, for the most part, a lot of the VC stuff that you see is gonna be primary capital that's gonna go really be the building blocks for, for starting some new businesses. Um, as you move kind of into um, uh, kind of growth and late stage growth, you're gonna see a little bit of a mix of both. And that continues on in the private, when you get to larger cap private equity, where again, you know, mix of both, but maybe you may see more of those transactions being secondary in nature. Um, that's kind of a natural thing because uh, at the outset, you need to capitalize these businesses to help them uh, grow as they mature and be become larger. Um, then uh, they may be uh, uh, they may be uh, basically producing the capital themselves that uh, enables their growth. And so what businesses need as they mature, sometimes it's less new capital and more new ways of thinking about approaching end markets, uh, approaching go-to-market strategies, approaching um, the way that they think about their cost structures and some more of the operational initiatives. And so yeah. when I think about earlier stage capital, I tend to think of um, smart investors, bar, uh, um, backing smart entrepreneurs yeah, to get their yep. businesses off the ground. As you move across the spectrum into um, later stage, more mature, you know, typically what private equity does, I tend to think about smart investors uh, purchasing controlling interests and really uh, having a very operational hands-on approach to improving businesses um, uh, uh, that, that are already reasonably mature. Got it. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and then, so you know, we want to talk about like the main goal of private equity outside of, you know, generating above average returns. Um, when you're looking at making investments, uh, and I know you're on more of the fund procurement side for KKR, but could you speak to some of the key metrics that KKR like looks at examining when, uh, you know, prior to making large investments? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, you, you kind of mentioned it to start, but like, what are we really in business to do? Um, for the most part, you know, sovereign wealth funds and pension funds that invest, you know, teachers and firemen's pensions uh, entrust us with money uh, uh, intending to get uh, more in return. Uh, and so, you know, our, our, our overall, if you look at like our mission statement, um, it, it, it is to sustain and grow the kind of intergenerational capital of these um, of these uh, pensions and sovereigns, et cetera. Um, how do we do that when we actually get to a transaction itself? Um, you know, different deals are going to require different things, but what are we looking at? Um, we are looking at 
when we look at a business, we're, we're looking at what is the, um, you know, on the, on the financial side, we might be looking at things like what, what portion of the market does this business control and are they set up to be a net taker of share going forward or, or a net loser of share? Um, what are the pricing dynamics in the end market that uh, they service? Um, what are, what's their customer concentration? Um, uh, what are kind of some of the existential threats to this business, be it regulatory, uh, ESG related or other? And we could spend a lot of time on ESG, but it's becoming, uh, ESG started as a kind of nice to have. And, and now it's, you know, I think there's really a concept of doing well while doing good. Um, businesses with a positive ESG story are, are going to outperform businesses uh, that don't. Um, yeah. and, and so that's something we spent a ton of time on. Um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, from a financial metric perspective, we're looking at a business's ability to um, withstand leverage that we put on the business. Um, we're looking at a business's ability to trade when we exit it. Um, at a, uh, usually we use EV to EBITDA. That's, that's kind of yeah. our you know, traditional valuation metric. Sure. Um, it, it, that's not always the case. And in some industries, you may have some adjustments uh, to that. Like you may think more about EV to EBITDA, less CapEx. It just depends on the nature of the business. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but these are, you know, at the end of the day, you're kind of looking at, you know, the nuts and bolts, you know, what, what, are, what, are the, what are the margins? Where is there room for improvement? What's the growth trajectory on the top line and on the, and, and, and on the EBITDA? So, you know, um, it, it spans from these kind of operational um, uh, uh, pieces to these very financial ones in nature. And the fun thing I think about private equity is that you, you not only are you, you know, if you're a, uh, if you're a, a long only mutual fund analyst, you can, be really smart about evaluating a business and trying to project where it could go. The fun thing about private equity is you get to evaluate it, come up with a game plan as to what you want to do while you own it, and then yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And and you know, I know you kind of just touched upon like the um, I guess the key metrics for like investing, but obviously, kind of like a key part of the investment is making those operational improvements. So how does like a PE firm like KKR like actually go about making those improvements? Like I know sometimes they'll bring in a new executive team, um, very hands-on. If you could just kind of elaborate on what that process looks like. For sure. Um, some, sometimes you find a great business with a great management team um, where we can just be supportive and helpful as they enter new strategies or regions and, and help them grow. And, you know, we're, we're, we're sometimes investing behind a CEO, um, you know, where we think she's just an incredible leader. She's driven this business before and we can support her growth with capital and with our expertise and relationships. Um, and in those scenarios that may be, um, you know, introducing uh, that CEO to our other couple hundred portfolio companies that could yeah. be interesting partners of hers that could be um you know helping uh if if a if a business is planning a major overseas expansion that could be introducing her to um our geopolitical team that has relationships in those regions so sometimes it's taking good and helping make it better um, other deals we're buying very challenged businesses we might be um one type of deal that we love is the corporate carve out um, so um, I think you guys 
uh, probably think about LBOs and think a lot about public to private, so full leverage buyout of a uh, of a public company. Uh, a, a different style of deal is is called a, a corporate carve out, where we're buying a division out of a big corporate or a big conglomerate. And the nice thing about those deals is that you may have an underlying business where the markets are fundamentally sound, but for whatever reason, it was a non-core business inside the institute, you know, inside the corporate that it was in previously. Maybe it didn't have the best management team. Maybe it wasn't getting the most focus from senior leadership. Maybe there were some things that had been overlooked for a long period of time. So what are we doing there? You know, we we could be thinking about fundamentally changing uh, maybe the the Salesforce uh, incentive plan. How do how do we actually you know uh, push the product to market? We could be thinking about how do we price their products. Uh, we could be thinking about um, you know is there are, are there redundant layers of of management overhead? You know, sometimes you go into a situation and you say we can't even figure out what all these people are doing um, at, at the, at the manager level that, that could be there. Um, uh, you could be uh, looking at where their, you know, distribution centers are. Is there a footprint consolidation opportunity uh, to lower, to lower costs? Um, I do think it's at this point worthwhile saying private equity uh, obviously has had various perceptions in uh, the press and academia as to the social uh, impacts of private equity, negative and positive. Um, private equity firms buy companies and, and, and often do eliminate uh, positions. Um, private equity companies also uh, buy companies and grow their employee base. So I, I don't know in the industry across the whole, but um, you know, KKR, I at least know, has been a net creator of jobs. So when, when you improve businesses and make them better, uh, you're going to create jobs. Um, they may not be the exact same jobs that were there previously, but you're creating jobs. Now that's not to say we don't get it wrong occasionally. And there's some pretty <laughs> noteworthy examples of getting it wrong. Um, and you know, and, and those are those are tough outcomes. Like you know, it, it's all good when you're in the office modeling out on a spreadsheet, but when you know. When, when a business goes bankrupt and everyone loses their job, that's a, that's a really bad outcome. Um, but I think it's worth keeping in mind that A, we're net creator of jobs and B, everything that we're doing, um, you know, like you gotta remember who we're doing it for are, you know, the, the people that, that benefit are there are, you know, effectively the, the pension funds that invest in us. Um, not, obviously, as you guys know, uh, the executives within the private equity firms are compensated as well. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's not a charity. Um, so, um, but it was, I, that just came to mind when we were talking about the, you know, kind of uh, some of the operational stuff that we do. Um, but we really, uh, there was a, a time of kind of corporate raiders. And I think we've evolved well past that uh, as, as an industry. Um, I think that we are, are very focused on uh, growing and being a part of uh, an evolving economy. Yeah. And one of the things that you touched upon that I'm curious about is like, obviously kind of depending on the stage that you're at, like the um, willingness, maybe not willingness is the right word, but um, kind of as you get later and later, like you, you don't want to fail more and more in the sense of like when you're doing like venture capital investments, like if one comp given company like doesn't turn out, like it's probably not a big deal in the grand scheme of the portfolio. Um, 
but I'm curious, like for a private equity firm, I'm assuming like pretty much every deal, like you need to be like a positive return. Could you like speak to that? Um, yeah. yeah, that's a great, that's a great, great question. You go from this like angel end where like you only need one in 10 deals to work. Mm -hmm. I think you get to the private equity end and um, I don't know what the number is. Is it nine out of 10 need to work? Yeah. Uh, something in you know in that zip code um but the stakes for failure are really high because um you, you start you are dealing with more mature businesses and uh if they if they fail there's just a, a broader fallout from that um they're bigger businesses with more stakeholders um but but yeah we we go into our underwrites with you know we're typically trying to make call it, you know, two, two and a half times our money, 20% uh, gross IRRs um, on the deal over the course of kind of four or five years. Um, that's a typical kind of PE deal. Um, and, you know, returning, it's in angel world, while returning cost isn't a win, it's at least not a massive failure uh, uh, because you're just, you're gonna have a few of those just outsized returns. Um, sure. We have, you know, four and five X deals from time to time, but we're shooting for kind of two to three. And so you can afford fewer zero. You can't have a zero and you can't even really have that many ones. You know, a one X or a one and a half X, that's typically a disappointment for us, yeah. um, you know, much less uh, losing capital. So we do think when we do our underwrites, we look at, um, you know, what, what is our, you know, what are our cases? We'll typically kind of center around a base case will various upside cases, will various downside cases. Um, there's all, there might be a capital impairment case. That, mm -hmm. that typically, we're going to want that to be a pretty low uh, uh, portion of the distribution of returns, of outcomes. Okay, yeah. And so, like, I'm curious, you know, given the fact that, like, you need most, pretty much all of the um, deals to be winners, um, like how long does like the due diligence process take on like a given deal? I would imagine that it's much longer than an earlier stage investor. <laughs> uh, it can be quite a long time. Um, so there's there's one deal that uh, I've been working on since March last year um, that still hasn't closed. <laughs> uh, uh, we're we're hoping it closes early April. Um, although our work on that's really done. Um, it's a mix we'll track companies for years and kind of have a little bit of off the shelf, you know, kind of desktop work done. And then if that company comes to market, we'll dig in a typical process, maybe, you know, we'll kind of hear it's coming to market and spend like a month really studying. It'll come to market and there may be a six week, roughly, uh, uh, you know, bid process where we're doing, um, uh, management presentations, we're hiring third-party due diligence advisors, that might be legal, uh, tax, quality of earnings uh, within the accounting, um, environmental due diligence, uh, some other ESG due diligence, um, and then kind of some market work. So you might hire a, you know, a McKinsey or a Bain or a BCG to do some work for you. Um, it, it, but it's an intensive process uh, that, um, that, that takes, you know, kind of that, that really core due diligence period could be kind of four to eight weeks. Gotcha. And I know you kind of mentioned like 
you know, you'll be looking at a company for a while potentially, um, you know, before the, the opportunity arises to invest. Um, so what does that look like? Do you, do you kind of just like wait for like a given company to say, Hey, we're selling, or I know you guys are interested in like the, the carve outs, like they'll be like, Oh, we're going to try to get rid of this division. Or do you guys like oftentimes approach like a given company if you think it's interesting? Um, that's a good, yeah, that's a good question. It's a mix of both. Um, we, um, uh, one of the, we have the benefit of, of a really wonderful um, relationship network around the world, just having been doing this for 45 years at our firm. Other firms have, you know, similar uh, uh, networks. Um, so sometimes deals are, are born out of a relationship that, uh, you know, one of our partners or founders has with a, a peer um, in a certain industry. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the, the CEO of some conglomerate may be uh, talking to one of our partners and saying, hey, I've got this problem. You know, do you guys have a solution? And we may say, you know, yeah, here's something creative. We could carve out these divisions. Um, and that would be what we call a prop proprietary deal when it's just really a bilateral uh, deal. There's no auction process around it. Um, other times on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, a, a public company could have announced a strategic review. They've hired a banker. Um, the, 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 the bankers decide to run an auction process to sell the company. Um, you know, that, that could, and, and we might be bidding against a bunch of our competitors. Um, and then kind of in the middle, there may be situations where we identify a really interesting uh, target. And uh, it, it, there are a lot of rules and regulations around like how you can approach a company, like let's say that's a public company. So we may um, decide well, we're really interested in, in you know, in, in buying uh, public company ABC that makes widgets. Um, and we might send a letter to their board and the board uh, will uh, have a few courses of action. They could just reject it or they could consider it. And if they consider it, you know, the board needs to live up to their fiduciary duties. And so the board will likely um, disclose to the market that they've received this letter from us and announce that they're kicking off a process to solicit other bids. So even though we put it in play to an extent, um, the, 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 the board of that public company is going to want to make sure that they've done their duty to their shareholders by making sure that they got, you know, uh, a fair deal. Um, so, uh, and, and that could kind of precipitate an auction process. All sorts of different styles of these things, but, um, but it's a mix, mix of all that. Sure. <clears throat> and, and, you know, I, I'm kind of curious, Doug, in that process, how often are the kind of valuations <clears throat> squeezed up um, by that kind of auction process and, and how competitive can that get um, and, and other strategies that, that you at KKR take to kind of reduce the, the likelihood of someone else putting in a, in a kind of like a secondary bid or how does that work? That's a great question. Um, well, so one thing you got to mean to start with this, you need to be very, there are a lot of laws around um, uh, doing anything that would be considered anti-competitive. Um, so for example, we, if we know that another, another uh, uh, private equity firm also has interest in a company, uh, it, it would be illegal to go to that firm and say, hey, let's, let's agree where to bid, you know, so that it doesn't get out of hand or something like that. Like that, you can't do stuff like that. Um, you can say, hey, let's team up and do this deal together because we want to, you know, work together on this thing. That's fine. But you can't do it for an anti-competitive, you know, reason from a pricing perspective. 
Um, you know, as far as these things get at it, yeah, there are, there are auction processes that do get um, expensive. Interestingly, though, we've done a ton of analysis and work around this. Our proprietary deals and our auction deals have, have not had a distinguishable return outcome. Wow. So some, that doesn't mean that we might not pay more for some deals than others, but when we look at the end result, which is what really matters, like what matters is not where you buy a business, it's where you sell it, how, yeah. Yeah, how you sell it. Um, you know, we have not identified uh, a, a meaningful difference. Um, the, the, the thing you've got to uh, watch out for, I think in the auction processes in some ways is trying to understand okay, we have an internal cap, like here's as high as we can go. And it's really important to have a, 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 a governance framework around your investment committee that has an ability to retain discipline when you'll have an investment team that's been working on a deal for half a year. They're extremely emotionally invested in the transaction. And, um, and you know, they will typically be a little bit more willing to you know, give that extra penny than an investment team that's a little bit removed and dispassionate. Um, sure. Now, the flip side is sometimes you can be a victim of your own kind of analysis by paralysis and you have an investment team that has gotten so fixated on an intellectually driven, here's the price, yeah. and it takes the wisdom and experience of a, lot, a bunch of people that have been around the table who say, it doesn't matter if you pay a dollar more for this business, you're still going to have a great deal. So pay yeah. the extra, like, like we'd rather have this deal at that is slightly imperfect versus not having it at all. So, yeah. so, you know, so, so, you know, have a little courage and then go, then you got to go do a heck of a lot of work on the back end. So it's, a, it's a really interesting mix of both. When you think about the um, kind of game theory around these auctions, yeah. yep. um, yeah. what you, what you want to avoid as well, though, is you want to understand a little bit of what the landscape is, because if there's a strategic out there that, because of the synergies that they'll have, that's going to be able to pay light years above what private equity would be able to pay, you might want to be careful on how much time you spend on that business, because there's an opportunity cost to, to everyone's time. And these, you know, we, we work around the clock already. There's no extra time. <laughs> Yeah, no, right, right. <clears throat> I think that was a great kind of discussion on kind of the acquisition process for, for private equity. But to move on to um, another question, um, <clears throat> you know, this is a question I like to ask at kind of every stage of the investment process we've gone through VC and growth equity, like I said. <clears throat> um, you know, what are the general exit strategies or, or how are you looking to gain your returns um, in private equity? And how do they differ mostly in terms of the frequency of each kind of strategy? You know, it's, it's not like you know, private equity has <laughs> to tons of different options than, than a VC firm when it gets late stage. Um, but how, how, what's the frequency of each looking at acquisitions, IPOs, and that type of stuff as it compares to those earlier stage investment firms? Yeah, so I think that um, one thing that's just different when you get to the larger side of private equity is that your buyer universe on, in a private transaction may get a little smaller because the companies that we're working on are just, there's only so many people that are big enough to buy them. So when you look sure, at yeah. what our alternatives are, I would say that the, the main options are um, a sale to another financial investor. So you see a lot of, we call them secondary private equity deals, but a lot of deals where 
you know, we're buying a business from another private equity firm or they're buying it, you know, buying a business from us. Um, and you might think like, wait a minute, like if private equity is so good at what they do, is there any juice left in the, yeah, in the yeah. It's funny. You see these businesses that have been sold three, four times, uh, and the sponsors keep making 20, 25% returns um, wow. because they're just, you know, they're just great businesses that, you know, that, yeah. that continue to grow and, uh, and, and become better operated. Um, you, you know, you also find out sometimes that there is a reason that that other sponsor wanted to sell. So you got to do your work. Um, <laughs> that's one option. Uh, another option, which we love, is selling to a strategic. So we may, um, I love this. This is actually a great one. We bought, this is back when I, earlier, I, early in my time at KKR, we bought a business called Oriental Brewery. It's a oh, yeah. uh, beer uh, 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 company in, um, in South Korea. Owned, it was owned by Anheuser-Busch. Um, they had a lot of operational issues uh, at, at OB. Um, and they, um, and they, they couldn't clean it up themselves. They were also at the time, uh, needing to create some capital and liquidity at the parent level. And so we bought the business from them. We looked at the beer market in South Korea and said, this is really interesting. Um, a, this business isn't run great. We can, a little bit, we talked about earlier with the corporate carve out, but B, this market's going to really grow because we've got a bigger portion of the population drinking beer versus other liquors. So the, uh, soju is a, a big, uh, uh, it's like kind of like a sake basically, um, which is popular. But, um, but you saw this generational shift to drinking beer for one, and then also a lot of women starting to drink beer. And, and so there were these trends that were super interesting, and we thought we could go clean this business up. Bought the company. Uh, in it was a clause that Anheuser-Busch had the right to buy it back, I think after like four years, I can't remember now off the top of my head. Um, it ended up being like a, I can't remember, like four or five times return for us. Cleaned it yeah. up through the market, AB. So Anheuser-Busch bought it back from us after we cleaned it up. Um, <laughs> now it happened that they had that put option and they bought it back. But you know what you see there is an opportunity where like a corporate themselves may not feel like they have the tools to be able to improve a business. Sure. We go improve it, and then we could sell it back to someone that we bought it from. We could sell it to a, a competitor of theirs. You know, you, you, you know that's an option. So strategics are really interesting because they, quite frankly, they can afford to pay decent prices because of synergies. Um, and then lastly, you've got uh, IPOs, um, and um, the IPOs are obviously attractive uh, for two reasons. One is if you think about the the cost of capital for a private equity firm, you know, it's that like twenty percent. Right, you—that's the return that, that that they want to go earn. In the public markets, investors are looking for a lower. Uh, obviously, in the public markets, the the, the equity shares are liquid, um, and therefore less risky, um, and uh, investors do not demand as high a return. So, you know, anytime that you sell a business for a lower cost of to a lower cost of capital buyer, you're typically going to do well. Um, the other reason that we go down the public market route is that some of these businesses are so big that they have no other buyers. You have to go do an IPO. Um, and, uh, you know, when you do an IPO, though, it takes, you know, years to really fully exit because you have to, you know, you, you can only sell so much each time. Yeah. Um, so those are kind of the, 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 the main paths there. Sometimes you break a company up and sell it off in pieces. 
Um, sometimes you merge it with a, you know, with another company, but th those are kind of the main paths. Yeah. And so, so I obviously like, yeah. you know, four or five years is kind of a typical bull period. Mm -hmm. And so kind of like during, during that whole period and, and just generally for a leverage buyout, like you're, you know, want to make sure that the company that you guys are investing in and um, have in your portfolio has, uh, you know, strong cash flows, but obviously kind of COVID potentially disrupted a few, a few industries and, and their cash flows. So could you maybe talk about like how that's impacted um, kind of, you know, private equity generally and how KKR uh, and other PE firms have kind of worked with their portfolio companies to kind of manage and survive kind of these, uh, you know, times when their businesses might not be as stable as was previously anticipated? Yeah, absolutely. It was a, um, it was a really, uh, you know, massive system shock for the industry. Um, I think that what was interesting though, is you had a team of people um, that were, you know, that had lived through the financial crisis. And we've been spending the last 10 years figuring out how to prepare for whatever the next thing was. What you couldn't have really understood or prepared for was the, um, the, the, just the, you know, how, how global and how pan industry the, uh, the, the crisis was and how, how quickly it happened. Um, you know, that, that you couldn't particularly anticipate, but what you could do is go anticipate at every single portfolio company, um, you know, what do you do when there's a crisis? And that's something that we've been preparing for, for a long time. So um, we, we, we've had a, a relatively defensive posture really focused on portfolio diversification. Um, and, um, and, and so that helped us when COVID hit to be able to uh, 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 protect these portfolio companies. Um, I would say, you know, our, our kind of response to, to COVID, um, you know, kind of looked a little bit like this. First, we transitioned, of course, to a remote work environment. Now it's focused on just the health and safety of our of our people, um, and actually, uh, like a high level of productivity. Um, we 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 immediately started um, an intensive uh, portfolio review process um, with you know daily, weekly monitoring of the portfolio, um, and we we had a, a we staffed up kind of a cross functional COVID nineteen task force. Um, we, we then kind of realized, look, we're like, we have a lot of stakeholders and like, there's a lot of people in these portfolio companies that could benefit from kind of some shared resource. So um, we, uh, we, we basically thought about like, who are the communities surrounding each of our portfolio companies and how can we uh, support them? Uh, whether that's, you know, financially through remote resources, um, you know, et, et cetera. So, so that was, you know, kind of just making sure that we were there for our stakeholders. And then um, lastly, kind of what I'd call like an offensive and defensive playbook. Um, so how do we support and strengthen them? Um, how do we identify and execute opportunities for new and existing investments on the offense? I think when it gets to, um, you know, what I think of as like the, you know, the, the, uh, the, 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 you know, supporting communities, you know, piece that I referenced, we raised um, $50 million uh, from our, uh, executives uh, to, to support um, our, our communities uh, in, that are most impacted. Um, we had some particular uh, uh, portfolio companies 
that uh, were specifically in the healthcare space where we were able to actually deploy uh, some resource directly. Um, and then the, the next thing that we did is really on the capital market side, um, which was making sure that our portfolio companies were well positioned uh, to access uh, the, the markets. And we did a number of refinancings, extensions uh, of, um, of, uh, of, of, of our uh, capital structures in order to provide some support. There were also a couple, uh, 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 what I would say more critical portfolio companies that were in need of capital uh, to support the capital structure where the lenders said, hey, you better put up some equity or we may, <laughs> we may not be a fun conversation. And so um, I actually was pretty closely involved in those where we went out to our limited partners and co-investors alongside of our funds and said, um, hey, we, uh, you know, we, we should put together some equity commitments. We may or may not need them to show the lenders that there's support behind these businesses. Now, we didn't lose any businesses, um, which was great. And we actually didn't have to even use much of that capital. Um, but it was a, boy, it was all hands on deck. It was a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was a real lot. So, um, so we, uh, we, 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 the one cool thing I think, though, um, is a piece of advice I would give, you know, folks who are younger in the industry starting out. I started in 2006 in finance. So I was there like during a short boom. And then a horrible crisis. Mm. I really wish that I had paid even more attention. I didn't realize how, how profound what was going on was in 2007, 2008. Spent a lot of time just thinking about your own job, right? <laughs> um, I didn't feel at that time that I was in a position to be as impactful around. You know, I, I felt like I was a participant, not a not a, not a, not a driver at that time. And, you know, fast forward to COVID, you know, 12 year, you know, whatever it is, you know, you know, I guess, you know, that was kind of 07, 08. So this is, you know, you know, whatever, 13 years, uh, 12, 13 years later. Um, and now I'm like in the seat where I'm the one trying to design, you know, securities to support our portfolio companies. Um, I wish I had, I, I wish my, you know, that I had had more of a base, you know, um, ultimately what was a wonderful learning experience over the last year for all of us at every level was pattern recognition. You know, I've dealt with distressed companies before, but I've never dealt with like five distressed companies at one time. And then looking at where are they different? Where are they the same? What tools, what tools that we use here can we use across the globe? And what tools were really specific to a market? The pattern recognition piece is huge. So I, one thing that I would really encourage is there's going to be a ton of, um, there, there's been a lot of work to do because of COVID. There will continue to be a lot of work to do because of COVID. There's also probably going to be an unbelievable amount of kind of academic analysis as to the response to the crisis. I would really encourage people to like pay attention, learn it now, ask questions now, because it'll fade from memory over time. Um, you know, and now's kind of the time to soak it up. Like you got to be a sponge early on. Um, so that, that would be one, one takeaway for me. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and then on a similar note, but outside of your portfolio company specifically, could you talk a little about you know, your role in capital markets and how financing and capital structure has changed over the last year, given these drastic decreases in interest rates as a, as a response to COVID? For sure. Um, you know, I'd say just on the financing piece first. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the financing market is incredibly healthy. Um, and uh, you know, that, that cheap financing, 
um, you know, th there's, there's two things that we do because of that. Uh, one is we go look at every one of our portfolio companies and try to figure out if we can refinance any of their uh, capital structures just to make them cheaper. Um, to give you a sense, um, you know, we're doing, we, I think we've, we've refinanced almost $200 billion of, uh, of, of portfolio company debt uh, in the last like five years. Um, you know, so we're constantly looking at every capital structure trying to, I mean, it's just like, you know, refinancing the mortgage on your house when rates go down. Like, yeah, yep. It's a lot of work, but it's worth it. Uh, you know, the, 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 the second thing um, that I'd say uh, it, it's allowed us to do, um, you have to be careful um, when debt is cheaper, you know, effectively it means you can afford to pay more for a business. Mm -hmm. um, but you've got to make sure that you design that capital structure in a way that's sustainable so that you don't end up with a higher cost of capital down the road. Like, since like, let's say because like, you know, let's say because debt's cheap, you, you know, you think you can pay more and still hit your return bogey, but then you would floating rate debt and rates spike. And now you're, yeah. now your cost of debt's actually high again. So, you know, what do you do? Do you do fixed rate debt or do you um, swap it down the road or do you buy interest rate hedges and if you buy those interest rate hedges, sure. do you, or do you not lose the, you know, the cost savings that you thought you had? So yeah. it's, it's kind of multivariable calculus uh, when, when you, when you kind of think through that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That, that's awesome. It's a very, definitely a complex area to be working in. Um, and, and then to, to wrap up here, Doug, with, uh, you know, the, the normal questions, <clears throat> could you tell everyone a little bit about I know you just gave us a little bit of advice, but could you tell everyone something else that you learned on early on in your career, maybe in finance that, you wish you would have known before starting out kind of outside that paying attention in these kind of you know, periods of distress? Yeah, I, I don't know if this is unique to me or, or, or if others will, will benefit from it or not. But, um, and for background, I didn't study finance. I was a, a studio art major in college. So um, <laughs> I, I started behind the curve. But um, one thing that I've realized is um, outside of some of the like, option math that I've done around convertible bonds, um, there's almost no difficult math. Like there's really, especially in like corporate finance, you know, leverage finance, like the world that I'm in, the math's all pretty easy. Sure. It's, the, it's the language that throws people off. And I think at the beginning of my, uh, at the beginning of my career, I just, I heard words that sounded different and complicated, and I just assumed that I wouldn't understand what they meant. And then it turned out they were like the most simple things in the world. And I wish that I had um, maybe uh, trusted myself a little bit more to be able to figure it out and, um, and not been, quite frankly, intimidated by some of the things that, um, you know, that I... That I heard. I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, when I was just got to KKR and I'd been in banking and in equities at City, so I didn't have a lot of leverage experience. I just got into KKR, and um, and the the like VP level guy that had hired me asked me to put together a term sheet for um, for for a transaction. So I did what every banker does, and I went and like copied a term sheet from another transaction because that's where you start. And then we were meeting with the, the partner that ran our group. And so the guy said, we'll run through the term sheet. And I was run, running through it. 
and I noted that um, it, there that there would be a springing revolver covenant, and um, and I just I I didn't. So then the the guy said, "Why do you include that?" I hadn't bothered to look up what a springing covenant was. I, I didn't know what it was. I just copied it over from another term sheet. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then when I actually, like, of course, what did I do? I, I went back to my desk and I Googled what's a spring, yeah. springing covenant, you know, and of course <laughs> it be like super, super easy. Yeah. It just yeah. means that it comes up if a certain event occurs, it, like, it springs into action. It's not yep. complicated. And like, you know how but i you know i didn't look it up it wasn't because i was busy and it wasn't because i was lazy it was because i read something i had no idea what it was and i just assumed i wasn't going to get it you know and like i was so stupid so i guess my point is you just um you just like you need to have some faith in yourself and 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 like none of these people that are like you may think early in your career oh i'm such a fraud i don't understand all this stuff i'm I'm 37, unfortunately, uh, you know, I'm an MD at KKR. I run a group and I still think, I don't know, you know like nobody <laughs> thinks that they're fully prepared yeah. for where they are. You know, I still don't. I've spent, you know, since 2006 on Wall Street, 15 years, always unsure. But I can tell you that, um, that no, you know, you, you, you should trust yourself and you know and trust yourself to dig into things to understand things none of it's that hard or complicated um you know yeah uh and, and it'll go a long way to have that kind of confidence um that you, that you can kind of pull through and do it yeah that, that's awesome advice i, I love that because i think some people definitely get thrown off when they first look at things so i think sticking through is a great great piece of advice um so we'll just wrap up really quickly. Usually do like a quick uh, five questions, like 10, 15 second answers, more fun questions, not really related to work. Um, cool. So what books are you reading right now or would you recommend? <laughs> um, I've been reading for the last year, um, a book called The Power Broker. Uh, it is about a guy named Robert Moses, who was a New York City, a New York State bureaucrat um, who built effectively the West Side Highway, the Triborough Bridge, the parks and parkways in Long Island. Um, it is an unbelievable story of New York and also an unbelievable story about bureaucratic power and how it can be uh, created, used, and, and misused. Um, also, uh, and, and, and I love it, it's like a thousand pages, which I, well, I've been reading it for a year. Um, also reading some Steinbeck right now, um, uh, To God Unknown is the book, love Steinbeck novels. They're, uh, they're really culturally important. Um, and then also uh, am reading um, Libby's History of Rome. So a little bit of a hodgepodge. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Um, what skill are you trying to develop right now or what's an area that you'd like to learn more about? Uh, good question. Uh, I, um, I fished a little bit growing up, but I've been trying to get like really back into fishing. And my wife and I just started playing tennis, which has been uh, a blast uh, and a good way to take out any marital issues is just to hit the tennis <laughs> play hard. Yeah, good team. <laughs> um, how do you stay, to, uh, stay up to date with latest developments in uh, your industry? And are there any new sources you recommend? Um, everybody's different. I think, I think you've got to do what is a personal preference for you. Um, one of my clients actually uh, like 
one of the, he summarizes every single news article related to the industry every morning and sends it at six in the morning. And so I read all the headlines and then I click on the articles I want to read. That's, that's my news for the day. Uh, <laughs> unless I get stuck in a New York post vortex, which you can, and it's yeah. just incredibly guilty pleasure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, who's your favorite CEO, either current or past? Oh, <laughs> oh man. Um, favorite CEO, current or past? Uh, I got to think about that one. I don't do favorites too well. Um, I think everybody, I think people bring such different skill sets. Um, Leading a culture. I love our co-CEOs at KKR, Henry and George. Um, You know, know, driving operational change. We've had some rock stars that I've seen in like our industrialist group. Um, But I think one thing that's been borne out over the last few years, especially of re-examining like, leadership relationships is that no one's been perfect uh yeah. so it's it's that's kind of a hard one to uh uh to uh to pick there's some awesome uh not to take any listeners away from your podcast um but there are some really really cool ceos uh that are interviewed on how i built this with guy Raz. yeah um yeah, and, yeah we love uh, that ama- amazing stories most amazing thing about those stories is all the places that they've screwed up yeah. and then <laughs> learn you know to to go from there absolutely um, and then finally, if you could start a company in any industry, what would you choose and why? Uh, um, that's a great question. Um, my, my wife is starting a, a wellness brand. Uh, and, uh, so I suppose I'll support her and say, uh, and say health and wellness. Um, but, uh, all kidding aside, um, the last year has shown us that um, the kind of emotional stress, you know, when you're thinking about your health, your job, your parents' health, you know, and, and kind of a, a, a global world that uh, seemed pretty dark at times, um, some of the, you know, kind of self-care uh, and, um, and, and, and mental health uh, initiatives that, um, that people have thought about are, are just like critically important. Um, yeah. And I think about in a world where everything is literally at your fingertips, um, one thing that can kind of get lost is, uh, is like your own uh, kind of well-being. Um, so I would, you know, I'd love to be, you know, uh, impactful in, in, in that space. That wraps up our conversation with Doug Brody, a managing director at KKR, one of the largest private equity firms in the world. So we're just going to jump into the debrief section where Alex and I are going to cover a few topics that might have been confusing. Um, So I'll talk a little about refinancing, some valuation metrics. Alex is going to talk about things like equity cost of capital, floating rate debt, uh, interest rate related things as well. So I'll quickly jump in here. So Doug talked a little bit about the concept of refinancing, and he talked a little bit about this in the context of the current markets where interest rates are really low. So a lot of times companies will refinance their debt when interest rates get super low compared to previous uh, rates. And basically, this is just where you can get a new loan to pay off your old loan. There's no reason to be paying all this interest when there's uh, new debt out there that um, doesn't make you pay as much. Um, So a lot of companies have been doing this. Uh, during a super low interest rate time period. Next, I want to talk a little bit about valuation metrics. 
So Doug talked about how a lot of the companies they value, they use EV to EBITDA, which is enterprise value to EBITDA. So this is a popular valuation metric using finance to value a company. Um, it's often kind of used in conjunction with price to earnings ratio, which is another uh, metric to be aware of. Um, but I'll stick with EV to EBITDA uh, for now. So the two kind of components of that metric, first are enterprise value, which is more comprehensive than something like mar uh, market cap, which is just like the common equity. Uh, EV reflects kind of the opportunistic nature of the business. Um, it takes into consideration um, things like how much debt and cash on the balance sheet, um, and it can kind of change uh, with more factors than just the general equity for the company. Um, the other component of the metric is EBITDA. So that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Um, this is just kind of an accounting term, uh, but it's generally used as a proxy for the company's current operating profitability um, and cash flow generally. Um, so, you know, cash flow is usually the king in valuation. Um, and so that's why this is taken into consideration. And so generally valuation multiples are used to compare different companies. Um, so, you know, different competitors, uh, you, you want to compare and see how they're valued. Are they overvalued? Are they undervalued? And basically what you would do is you, for example, if you have an EV to EBITDA multiple for a given industry, you could multiply that by the EBITDA for a given company um, and try to, you know, see what the implied enterprise value is for that. Um, so that might be helpful in kind of determining what you think the, uh, you know, cost of acquiring this company might be. So that kind of wraps up that discussion. Next, I'll talk a little bit about what Doug was saying when he said, it's not necessarily where you buy, it's where you sell. So he was saying, we were talking a little bit about like bake-offs and, and where there might be a bidding war between you know, different companies or different private equity firms in, in acquiring a company. And he basically said that um, it's more important understanding what your exit is going to be um, and if sacrificing a little bit on the price that you buy the company at, if that doesn't make you, uh, if that doesn't force you to have a bad return, then you should probably still go with the deal. Like for example, if, if paying a little bit more, you know, brings you from a six X return to a five X return in three to five years, like that's still a fantastic return for your, for, you know, your, your LPs. There's no reason that you have to just give up on the deal because you're paying maybe a little bit more than you think it's worth. Um, so that's basically what he was saying there. It's more about where you can sell it at. Um, sacrificing a little bit on the initial entry price, you know, might not, uh, you know, detrimentally impact your returns too much in, in some instances. Um, and in those instances, you should just jump in. So that wraps up what I want to talk about. I'll hand it over to Alex to talk about a few other things. Thanks, Connor, for going over those topics. And then so next, we're going to move into talking about equity cost of capital. So equity cost of capital is essentially the counterpart to your cost of debt. So when you're looking at valuing projects, your cost of debt is really the interest rate that you're going to be paying on debt that you're loaning. And the equity cost of capital is the rate of return that equity holders or investors are expecting. So essentially, if an investor is looking to give you money, it's, it's the cost of that money. So an investor is expecting 10%. So when you go to value a project and you're going to be discounting the cash flows of those projects back to present value, you should be looking at it 
and using this equity cost of capital to determine whether or not certain projects should be taken on depending on how much of it you're financing with equity and how much of it you're financing with debt. So again, this is really used when kind of deciding whether or not to take on certain projects. And it's the expected return that investors have for a certain project or for a certain company. So next, we're gonna talk a little bit about floating rate debt, which is another topic uh, that Doug covered in our, in our interview. Floating rate debt can also be known as variable rate debt. And it's essentially um, a, a financial security in which the interest rate that you're gonna be paying on the debt you're borrowing is tied to a benchmark and can change over time, hence the floating rate. So if you were to borrow money right now when interest rates are super low, and then in five years, interest rates uh, for T-bills were, were to rise, kind of the risk-free rate were to rise, your rate that you're paying on interest would also rise. So this is uh, can be re relatively risky, as Doug mentioned, when valuing projects, because the you know you might be valuing it based off of a zero percent interest rate right now, but in the future it rises. But uh, it could also be kind of beneficial because if you think interest rates are really high right now and they're going to fall in the future, then it can make the value of the project go up. So it's just a a a, a security or a strategy. It's pretty um, you know complex strategy and it's not used all the time but it, it can drastically affect the value of a project. So next tied to that, Doug also mentioned kind of interest rate hedges or swaps. So th these are pretty complicated. It's not something you need to be super aware of at this point, probably in your career or your, your kind of educational um, path, but they're complex financial strategies general, that generally allow you to swap variable rates for fixed rates or fixed rates for variable rates for a period of time. And this can make cash flows um, either more predictable or kind of more varied um, depending on what, what you're doing, either going from fixed to, to variable or from variable to fixed. Um, but again, it's not something that you need to be super aware of, but it's good to know generally what they are. Um, and they essentially allow you to, like I said, swap for <laughs> fixed for variable, variable for fixed, um, and, and they can act as hedges. So uh, a way to kind of lock in um, um, you know, a, a lower rate if you think it's low, switch to a variable if you think the rates are gonna fall um, and that type of stuff. So thank you everybody for listening. I hope we were able to answer a lot of questions and uh, things that might've been confusing from this interview uh, and we'll catch you next time.